While we are called to pour out our life for our people, our communities, our churches, our organizations, uh, we're called first to attend to Jesus and receive from him. And out of that place of reception and joy and peace, we are to offer what we have to others. We can't give what we don't have. So the presence and uh, Jesus inside us um, and our reflection of his character is, is the greatest gift we can offer the world. Well, hey, everyone, it's Jason here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today, we have Ken Shigematsu with us. Ken is the senior pastor of 10th Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. 10th is one of the largest and most diverse city center churches in Canada. Ken is the author of the award-winning and best-selling books, God in My Everything and Survival Guide for the Soul. And Ken has been someone who I have looked up to for a long time as a pastor and a preacher and as a leader. He's smart and humble and has a contagious love for Jesus. In this conversation, we talk about Ken's process for preaching to a diverse, progressive city, which was deeply interesting for me to hear how he formed that and the kind of feedback loops he's built in. We talked about rhythms of work and rest and spiritual formation, and we lean into all of that and more in the conversation, so I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we jump in, I just want to say a huge thanks to the team at Alpha Canada for partnering with us to make this episode possible. At the end of today's episode, I'm excited to share a bit more about the impact that Alpha Online has had in our church and across the country. Okay, with all of that said, here is our conversation with our friend Ken Shigematsu. Well, Ken, I just want to start by saying how grateful I am for you as a church planner in Vancouver coming to the city and you've been so kind and so friendly to me and the team and I've known you as a writer and a pastor and a speaker from afar and admired your work. And so I'm, I'm very excited and honored to just be chatting with you today, but then to experience you um, up close and experience the same sort of warmth and welcome. Yeah, I'm just so grateful for you and such a fan. And so thanks for making time to chat today. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I've been uh, praying for you and the way and the team. Very excited for you and what God is, is doing through you all. Oh, it's so fun. I think the story of 10th Church is a story of great hope, I think, for uh, pastors, church planners, not just in urban context, but anywhere across Canada where it feels hard to see discipleship and life change happen. And before we go into the story of 10th, because I think it's a really fun one for people to hear a bit about, um, just give us a little window for those that might not know you as well into your life, your family, and your work today. Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm a resident of Vancouver. Uh, we're like most of our listeners in the midst of COVID, trying to make the best of it. I'm married to a woman named uh, Sakiko, and we've got a 12 years old son named Joey, who is just starting grade seven. And we've got a golden retriever named Sasha. She's uh, eight years old, but she still acts like a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. And yeah. you, how long have you been pastoring at 10th now? So I am into my 25th year. Wow. Yeah. And before you took leadership of 10th, tell me if I understand this right. They experienced, is this right, 20 different pastors over 20 years? Is that right? That's right. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of turnover. Wow. And at some point, you can give us some more details on the history. 10th was a big church, a uh, thousand people. But when you took leadership, it was much smaller than that. Can you tell me a little bit about what you walked into when you took leadership of 10th? 
Yeah, Jason. So uh, as we just mentioned, the church had cycled through about 20 pastors in 20 years and had dwindled from over a thousand in the 1950s when it was at its peak to a hundred and something in the mid 1990s. Mm. And when you take, when you step into a church with a story like that, you know, I'm church planning, I'm creating a culture. When you walk into a story like that, what, what is a, what is a great leader need to do when they step into a church with history like that, where people have decades of history and all sorts of successes and also hurts along the way. Yeah, I think it's really important to honor the past. So a guy named Ray Bakke, who's a urban missiologist, told me as a new pastor here, consider the, the high points of your past, the, the points to celebrate, and they will give you permission for your mm. future. As I came into 10th, I, I read through all of the, the elders' minutes from, like, I think 1930-something all the way to 1996 at the time. And I saw that 10th had a great history of innovation around mission, both locally and internationally. But when I arrived here in Vancouver, the, the board asked me not to engage in planting new sites. I had planted a church in California with a friend. They said that the mother is really aging and ill. And so we really want you to attend to the health of the mother. Hmm. And uh, so they, they said, um, you know, don't try new ma- many new things, uh, play it safe. And uh, I wanted to honor that request. But I also looked in the history of 10th and saw that they were committed to innovation and to taking risks. And so at the right time, that gave me permission, gave us permission, I think, to try some new things. And today, 10th is a very diverse church, a large church, multiple sites. Um, What was the journey in those first maybe five years? Like, did that, does that growth towards diversity in age and ethnicity and even socioeconomic demographics and growth numerically, did that come quickly or did that come later in the story? No, that came a little later in the story. So uh, the church had cycled through a lot of pastors, as I mentioned, and um, some board members were expecting me to do some some big things. But I was coming into tent in a very painful place. My fiance and I had broken up. And in retrospect, I can say that was a good thing for both of us. But at the time, I couldn't see that. And I think on week one, the secretary walked into my office and said, if the ship sinks now, meaning the church, everyone is going to blame you uh, because <laughs> you were the last captain, last captain at the helm. I think she was trying to motivate me to work harder. And uh, <laughs> it, it was just depressing. And then my mentor, a few weeks later, Leighton Ford, the brother-in-law to the late Billy Graham, happened to be in Vancouver. And uh, we were in my car outside the church, and I was desperate for some encouragement, but too ashamed and embarrassed to ask for that. And so instead, I said, Leighton, can you give me some counsel? So he crosses his long legs, he pauses, and he says, Ken, remember that God is an artist. He will not lead you to copy anyone else. So seek God for a unique vision for this place. And so those were words that sunk deep into my soul and have Mm. guided me ever since. And so I felt led to seek God and call on others to do the same. And I didn't know how uh, we could generate momentum. I wasn't, you know, feeling very strong at the time, as I mentioned. But one time during prayer, I sensed the Spirit saying, if you will bless people who cannot repay you, I will bless you, meaning as a church. I didn't know what that meant. And then not long after, a homeless man named Robert was sleeping outside the building. 
right outside of where I'm standing now. And, and so one of the elders took Robert to his fully furnished laneway home and said, you can live here free the rest of your life if you want. But Robert kept gravitating back to the church. And on a cold February morning, uh, he succumbed to the elements. He was cold to the touch. He died. It was just, it was terrible. It was shocking. And so I felt we needed to open up our church building on the coldest months of the year to the homeless. And we began a, a shelter and feeding ministry. And uh, the spirit seemed to move in, in slow but powerful ways. And we saw a diverse group of people coming to tent, not just the homeless, but people that are successful by worldly standards, artists, people of, of different religious backgrounds or no religious backgrounds. And so it was a slow stream of, of people coming to know Christ. And um, yeah, it really has been the spirit's work, mm-hmm. you know, despite me and, and, you know, the mistakes I've made along the way. I love that you brought up Leighton Ford. When I read your books and I hear you speak, I love that friendship you had, that kind of mentorship relationship. And I just wonder if you could just take some time to talk about, about Leighton and about your relationship and friendship with him, because it's just such a, it really, it really impacts my heart. I just think, I think as ministers, we long for mentors, but also, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, like fatherly figures to look to in the faith mm-hmm. that, and I just love, I just love hearing you talk about him. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about him and your friendship with him. Sure. So I first met Leighton or got to know him when I enrolled in something called the Arrow Leadership Program. Some of your friends may be familiar with that. I was in my mid-20s making the transition from the corporate world to the world of vocational Christian ministry. And it was the pilot class, and I was the, the least experienced in Christian ministry, probably the youngest, very intimidated. And so I was very eager to impress Leighton Ford, the founder, and one time in class, I raised my hand and I was able to summarize this obscure book written by an MIT professor. I was trying really hard. <laughs> and, uh, and then I stumbled as a young Christian leader, got into a conflict with someone I was working with because of my own immaturity. I was in a dating relationship where we were struggling to maintain certain boundaries. And um, this is what I discovered with Leighton, that his acceptance of me was not dependent on my performance. Hmm. It wasn't dependent on my capacity to contribute to his organization. He loved me just because for no apparent reason. And fast forward, you know, 25 years later or so, I feel more comfortable in my skin, in his presence than ever before. And it's not that I no longer want to make something out of my life and ministry in part to honor his investment in me, but it doesn't come from this anxious, desperate need to be accepted and validated, but out of a deep place of gratitude that comes from knowing that uh, he loves me as I am. And that really is life-changing to know that uh, someone cares for you without condition, uh, that's, um, that, that there's a love not based on your performance. And for mm. me, it's an analog to how God sees us. Mm. For, I guess I, could, I was going to say for young pastors, I was going to say, what is some advice for actually cultivating those relationships? But I also know that there's some older leaders listening and they actually long to be that in someone's life. And I just wonder if you can maybe coach people on both ends of the spectrum. How do we cultivate those kind of ministry relationships where it's like, there's not this professional dynamic. You might not even be in the same organization, but there's this, um, this mentorship relationship that can actually span over years. Any advice or thoughts on how to cultivate that? Yeah, I would say um, if you're a, a younger leader wanting to learn from someone, uh, just take the initiative, email, call, see if you can arrange a singular conversation, maybe after COVID at lunch or during COVID, a Zoom call, 
and see if there's chemistry and see if that person might be available to you from time to time. And if that works well to see if you could stretch that out to a six month, maybe a year long period and, and see how it goes. And the other thing uh, that may or may not be intuitive for people is that a lot of leaders that we see as maybe great and somewhat inaccessible are also feeling somewhat isolated and lonely. Mm. And, and so I hope Leighton doesn't mind me mentioning this, but his wife has said this to me, that I'm one of the few people in his life, maybe, well, one of the few, who just calls him to see how he's doing with no agenda. And, and that, I think, means a lot to him. My wife has encouraged me to do that. And so uh, if you can love someone, whether they're a mentor or not, that's going to cultivate a, a relationship. If you can have some time or lots of time without an agenda, that, that makes a big difference. And then for people that are, are a little older, uh, I would say, you know, take an interest in younger people. And if they ask for your support, just be available as you can. And, and um, I believe in whole life, you know, I, ideally lifelong kind of mentoring where it's not just coaching on a specific matter, but um, watching someone's development and trajectory over time and, and, mm. and, and caring and being present. Mm. What are some of the things that you've most learned from Leighton? Well, one of the lessons early on was, um, and it may sound abstract, but it, I think it's deep in my bones. Um, don't be an empire builder, but be a kingdom seeker. Mm. And um, something else I learned, and this may be helpful for people that are just beginning. Uh, when I finished seminary, I had the opportunity to work for an international leadership development organization and, and another opportunity to go to California to, to plant a church. And I didn't have a clear sense of guidance from God at that time. And I was talking to Leighton about it. And he said, if you don't have a clear sense of what path to take, choose the path you most want to take if you've got a deadline and just trust that God will make it right. And um, that was really practical. I ended up going to Southern California. I was there and uh, was living in a beautiful place, you know, gifted to me. I mean, free of charge. I, the person didn't give me their house, but traveled a lot and said, you can live uh, free of charge. I wasn't making much money. Um, the ministry was going well, but I just had a sense, Jason, that God was calling me back to Vancouver, back to Canada. Mm. And uh, so um, that call to California was temporary, but it yeah. eventually became a, a pathway back to Canada. Well, I'm just so thankful that you made a decision to leave sunny Southern California. <laughs> For a much colder, uh, <laughs> climate-wise, Vancouver. Um, I wanted to speak a little bit with you about the culture of Vancouver. And we can speak broadly about Canada as a post-Christian culture. And I, I, I realize that sometimes generalizing is tough because in a city like Vancouver, you've got first-generation immigrants, you've got tons of diversity, and then you've also got this post-Christian, very Western, you know, university-educated type framework. So we can't generalize it. But I do think preaching and ministering in this context is unique. And um, I think that your communication in the pulpit, but then also your ministry outside the pulpit is, is just so thoughtfully crafted to respond to the questions of this day. And I just would love for you to kind of take your time to help us unpack some of the cultural things, some of the, the nuance of the Canadian cultural landscape or Vancouver and say, what does it look like to preach and pastor to reach this culture? Yeah, I, I feel that the the best way to prepare yourself to preach, whether it's in Vancouver or your context, and this may sound a bit like a cliche, is to really know the people 
in your world. And so I began preaching sort of by accident. I was working for the Sony Corporation in Tokyo. I was attending a tiny church with a pastor who was 80 years of age. He knew I wanted to eventually become a pastor. So he asked me to pinch it from time to time. And, and so whenever I'd preach, I'd invite folks from Sony who weren't Christians to come to our little chapel. And so I began preaching with a secular people in mind, nominal Buddhists, and that really shaped my preaching. And it's really important for me here in Vancouver to cultivate friendships with people who are different from me culturally, whether they're indigenous, whether they find themselves on the LGBTQ spectrum, uh, whether they are radical you know, feminists. Uh, and when I'm in relationship with them and, mm-hmm. and uh, occasionally inviting them out to church, especially during Christmas, that will shape the way I, I, I preach. And so um, I'm going to be preaching on the church's response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of, uh, of Canada soon. And uh, whenever I preach on such themes, I will reach out to Indigenous friends of mine and ask them to give me counsel on how to shape it. I'll vet a copy of an early draft. Uh, some years ago when I was speaking on how God values the unborn, I reached out to five or six people who aren't Christians that are feminists that would be very much uh, pro-choice. And mm. I asked them to read my manuscript and to push back. And and uh, and that helped me craft, I think, a better, more nuanced sermon while still maintaining uh, the convictions that I have that I believe come from Scripture. So That's a pretty vulnerable process to sort of put your, your work out there. Um, was that something that you were cultivating early on in your preaching journey that come later? Because you've been now in Vancouver for 25 years. Yeah, so... Um, when I came to 10th, I connected with some of my predecessors, and uh, one of my immediate predecessors uh, was a pastor here who had kids that were teenagers, and apparently after church, they would have lunch together, and, and his kids would basically roast him and critique the sermon. And I thought, boy, it would have been so much more helpful, I think, for the pastor if he had heard the critique ahead of time. Hmm. And so <laughs> I began to assemble a group of pastors, and there would always be a woman, and a layperson, I had a journalist, that uh, I would vet my sermon past uh, several days before, take their critique, and, 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 and then rework my sermon based on that. And at Christmas and Easter, I, I want to be reaching people that aren't religious, so I'll always vet my message past a thoughtful person who's not a believer, doesn't, is an atheist, and, and that really helps me uh, become a better communicator. I need all the help I can get, Jason. And so, uh, so I welcome it. And uh, I just, I would rather have the critique ahead of time than, than after, though I'd, mm-hmm. I welcome it after too. So, mm. I've, As I've been walking around Vancouver and praying, and I think this could be the same experience in any city in Canada or any post-Christian culture around the world, I find myself looking, and maybe it's just how I'm wired, I'm really full of hope about, reaching the city, helping people meet Jesus. And maybe I could say like, I'm full of hope about the idea of evangelism in the city, Mm. but I'm really intimidated by the task of discipleship in the city. And I know that they're not totally two separate things, but I find myself really aware that there are massive competing forces for people's affections and times. And they might be drawn to the message of Jesus, but when it comes to actually becoming like him and that work of letting go of other worldviews and idols. And I just would love like you to tell me a little bit about what you've learned about discipling people in the way of Jesus in a city like Vancouver. Yeah, well, one of my first lessons came from uh, the, the sitting mayor when I was a new pastor here. So someone encouraged me to 
meet up with someone named Philip Owen, who was certainly before your time, Jason. Uh, he was at the time attending St. John's Shaughnessy and Anglican Church. And uh, I asked him for advice as a new pastor here. What should I emphasize? And I thought he would say, you know, support our, um, you know, uh, I think it's called the Four Pillars, uh, you know, Get Free from Drugs program, um, Minimizing Harm, or um, Help Us with Our Homeless Ministry, Our Homeless Work. But uh, Philip looked me uh, in the eye from across his, uh, his wooden table and said, the best thing you could do for the city of Vancouver, Ken, is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, point people to him. This is the mayor of Vancouver. And so I've never forgotten that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just thrilled to hear your heart, Jason, to point people uh, to Jesus. In terms of spiritual formation and, and discipleship, you know, we live in a very anxious age, particularly during COVID. And, you know, people will turn to all kinds of things. Alcohol, drugs, sex, food, Netflix, uh, shopping, uh, to try to assuage their restlessness. But as Eckhart Tolle, the Vancouver-based spiritual teacher, who's obviously not writing from a Christian perspective, says uh, that when we reach for these things in an unconscious attempt to remove our restlessness, Mm -hmm. they provide only very short-lived relief from our symptoms. And so a better path is to meet Jesus and then to cultivate a deep relationship with him. And I found that uh, meditation really helps me to take a deeper dive into that relationship, that it not only fosters um, a change in my character for the better, but it also helps me live with greater peace, more love toward others. And, and so it, it's deeply transformational. And I have found that the, the path of the contemplative practices uh, can be a, a powerful way for people to become more like Jesus, but also experience his peace and joy. Well, hey, we're going to jump back into our conversation with Ken in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share about an exciting webinar that our team at CCLN is putting on in partnership with Alpha Canada, sort of like a live podcast recording sort of webinar. We've got Father James Mallon and John Tyson join us in conversation on October 13th on the themes of mission, ministry, and the future of the church. John Tyson is the lead pastor of Church of the City in New York. He's an author and a church planner. And Father James is a parish priest in Nova Scotia and the author of Divine Renovation and the pioneer of Divine Renovation Ministries. Both John Tyson and Father James are profoundly shaping the landscape of church ministry today, not just in North America, but around the world. And their conversation is going to be hosted by Shayla Visser from Alpha Canada, and I can't wait to be part of it. I get to welcome everybody and close off with some prayer at the end. And so I'd love for you to join us and help us spread the word. It's happening on October 13th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. You can find out more information and register at ccln.ca slash webinar, or you can find the links on our Instagram at churchleadersnet. Network. Okay, with all of that said, let's jump back into the conversation with Ken. Could you take us into that moment in your ministry journey where your own journey into those contemplative practices really came alive? There it seems like there were some defining moments along the way. And then I would love from that place for us just to chat a little bit about what you've learned since then um, as a pastor trying to abide deeply in Jesus. And so what was that defining? There's some defining moments in your ministry journey where those came alive to you in a new way. Yeah. So early on, Jason, as I mentioned, the secretary said, if the ship sinks now, everyone's going to play music. So I was feeling a lot of pressure uh, from that comment. And I was feeling just awful. And 
when I was in Tokyo, I was what they called a 7-Eleven man, meaning that my workday went from 7 in the morning to 11 at night in, 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 in the corporate world. It was just crazy. And when I became a pastor in Vancouver, I thought things would settle down for me quite a bit. Mm. But I found myself keeping almost the same hours. I felt like I was constantly treading water. And so during this intense time, Leighton Ford, who I, I've mentioned, invited me to join him on a pilgrimage to the holy places of Ireland. I'd never been mm. to Ireland. It's not the old country for me. I'm from Japan originally. Um, but I went with him and a small group. And we visited the ancient monasteries and learned about a way of life from the monks that they describe as a rule of life. I describe this in my book, God in My Everything. And um, they described a way of life where they could experience God as alive and real, not just as they were praying in a chapel, but as they were working out in the fields, as they were studying in a library, as they were making a meal in a kitchen. And I was really hungry to experience God as alive and real in every part of my life. And so I began to put into practice some of these simple habits I learned from the monks, things like Sabbath, things like um, meditation, and uh, these habits would slowly go on. And I emphasize slowly go on to really transform my life. Oh, I love that. Um, I'm a big fan of both your books. I've got them here. God in My Everything, um, which I read a, a while ago and then I've gone through with friends before and have and I've kind of earmarked certain sections because I find it just such helpful descriptions. And I even go back at the end. One of my favorite parts is just that in an appendix, you've got mm. your rule of life and other people's rules of life. Um, and just has been a massive resource to me because I find for me, like it's almost like every year I'm rewriting it. Like I'm having to, you know, as I have kids or as my work changes, rhythms change, and then COVID happens and my rule of life seemed to not fall apart. Some were really stabilized, but I had to reinvent. And I remember pulling this out again, actually. And when COVID started, I said, I've got to rethink this rule of life. And then you've got a more recent book, uh, Survival Guide, Guide for the Soul. And um, again, deeply practical. And one of the things I loved about it is you, you, you go deep into the description of meditation. You just kind of mentioned that. Now, and I just love for you to talk about that personal practice of meditation and what that looks like for you. And then what could that look like for somebody who feels really new to that or hasn't tried that in their personal walk with Jesus to begin to take steps like that? Yeah, thanks, Jason. You know, by nature, I'm a very easily distracted kind of person. So at any given time, I can feel like there are 127 monkeys jumping around in my brain. I was asking you before, do I wear the headset or, or, or not? What's better? Um, and so I find it really helpful to take some time in the morning to simply breathe deeply in through my nose and then exhale slowly. Breathe in through my nose deeply and then exhale slowly. And then I'll start to wonder, how much time has gone by anyway? <laughs> and so I'll open up a free app called Centering Prayer with a Chime. And I'll set a timer to maybe 15 or 20 minutes so I'm not thinking about the time. And uh, the chime will go off. It will summon me to pray as though I were in a monastery. Continue to breathe deeply in through my nose. Exhale slowly. And then I'll start to think of all the things I ought to be doing my to-do list. And so right. I'll reach for my Bible or, or maybe just the text I'm familiar with. And every time my mind wanders, I'll repeat that to myself. Be still and know that I am God. Distracted again. Be still and know that I am God. 
Jason, if I can just change scenery for a moment, you, you and I are from Vancouver. I love being out on the water, love to sail. I do not own a sailboat, but have friends who do. And there have been times when I've been out at sea and I've seen salmon jumping out of the water at a 45 degree angle. Rare occasions where I've seen pods of dolphins or even whales in the distance. And there are times when I'm sitting and breathing deeply in God's presence and I feel surrounded by this beautiful mystery that upholds the whole world in me. And there have been other times when I've been out at sea and I've seen an empty styrofoam cup bobbing up and down on the water or an empty Coke bottle or maybe a film of oil on the surface of the sea. And there are times when I'm in meditation and anxiety rises up inside Mm. me or a feeling of envy towards someone or a painful memory from the past or some kind of frustration. And I lift those up to God in prayer and I feel free. I feel lighter. And uh, when my time of meditation is over, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, the chime sounds, I almost always feel uh, fuller, more uplifted, more energized. There have been times during COVID when I felt depressed first thing in the morning. And, uh, you know, I exercise, I meditate. I don't always feel like on top of the world afterwards, but I always feel, I always feel more energized. And if I am facing down a particularly intense day because I've got some kind of hard conversation I'm facing or a big decision. Instead of meditating for 15 or 20 minutes, I'll meditate for maybe 40 or 50 minutes. Or if it's an unusually busy day, uh, because I find that this is the kind of practice that gives me more than it takes. I'm more creative. I'm more relaxed. I'm more fierce if I need to be. Uh, I'm more at peace. And so uh, it really is a gift. It doesn't feel like I have to, but mm. I get to. Um. I love walking by the seawall in Vancouver. And I feel like as I walk, I try to pray. I do a lot of thinking and problem solving. Like mm-hmm. I'll have an issue in front of me and I'll try to like mull it over with God. Mm-hmm. This sounds different than that. This is not necessarily like taking dedicated time to think about a problem or whatever. And I just would love to just help me understand the difference between like maybe come with a, a list of prayer requests or things to contemplate in a prayerful way. This, this feels different. And I just would love to understand that difference a little bit more. Yeah, for, for me, my time of meditation is uh, primarily a, a time just to sit and to savor God's presence in, in, in relative silence. I use that phrase, be still and know that I am God. Uh, and I'll be distracted. And Thomas Keating was this um, master teacher of meditation. And he says, look, if you're distracted a thousand times in meditation, it's a thousand opportunities to return to the Lord. And he also mm. said that um, people think that the most important goal of this kind of meditative prayer is attention, but the most important part is intention, or that's more important. And so at the end of my prayer time, I, I have some words of intention. Um, Lord, help me to love you well. Help me to love my wife, my son well, the people I meet today. Help me to grow whole and wise and help me to hear the voice that calls me your beloved. And so I just have these short prayers of intention at the end. And uh, so it really does feel like like a gift to be able to receive. I think there is a place and time, Jason, for a kind of uh, walking uh, meditation. And this kind of silence also fosters creativity. Uh, I will do a lot of my creative work uh, walking on a trail in a park or sometimes walking on the seawall. And the, the neuroscience shows that if you're walking, you know, you're you're stepping with your left foot and your right foot, you're engaging both sides of your brain. Mm. You're probably a little bit more relaxed. So the, the dendrite 
finding your brain actually reach a little further. And so that's actually a good practice too, but they have slightly different purposes. Oh, I love that. Um, in your book, uh, Survive a Guide for the Soul, you, you talk about this differentiation between the divided self and the whole self. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, if, I, if I recall um, correctly, I write about how in, in Genesis, there seems to be two different personas that Adam portrays. I'm getting this from a rabbi named Joseph Soltsevichik. So uh, in Genesis 1, Adam is called to, to have dominion over the earth. Um, he's called to produce and, and fill the earth. And then uh, in, in Genesis 2, he's called to walk with God in the cool of the garden. And I think in each of us, uh, we have this um, desire to produce, to be successful, what I call a striving Adam. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need striving Adam's uh, ambition to get things done. But we also have what I call a soulful Adam, a, a desire to connect with God, with the people around us. And, and um, because our society really rewards striving Adam, if you, if you never keep a Sabbath, in a lot of contexts, you'll probably get promoted. Um, but we, we don't honor or reward uh, people who take time for relationship, take time for Sabbath. And so in Survival Guide for the Soul, while I honor striving Adam and this ambition that we have, I also encourage people to cultivate their soulful Adam, their connection, their deep connection mm. with God and, and with the most important people in their lives. And I think that as we cultivate both, um, we, we become whole. Mm. I'm thinking a lot about how to create environments for teams, whether it's staff in the local church or lay leaders where there's this sense of conviction around the mission to give your best of your gifts and to be generous with your time and energy because the mission's worth it, you know. But then also to do it out of a place of rest in God and trust that the Spirit's the one who does the heavy lifting. And, and I feel like it's just such a tension, you know, this. And I, I, I just love, how have you, not just for yourself, because I feel like... I, I love listening to you talk about how you've cultivated this. And if anyone wants to hear more of it, I just really commend both these books and so many of your talks online are easy to find. How do we help our organizations, the people who are serving in our organizations in our church? Um, and how do we lead in such a way that help other people find that, that restful place to lead and serve from? Yeah. And, and Jason, I think you're right. Um, we're called to, to rest, but we're also called to pour out our lives as a, a drink offering as Jesus and the Apostle Paul and, and Esther did. Um, I find it helpful to, to use this, this model. Um, you know, as a person of Japanese ancestry, I'm probably geared genetically toward workaholism. Uh, and, and someone who spent considerable time in Japan uh, told me that if you're working at a factory, and I'm not sure if people can visualize this, uh, your, your output is going to be directly proportionate to the time that you work in the factory, you know, a certain hours in, certain widgets out. But if you're working as a pastor or in some kind of vocation that requires your judgment and your presence and your care, uh, you'll be more productive as you put more hours in to a point, but there will come a point of diminishing returns. And if you keep working beyond that, your reptilian brain will take over and you're going to do something um, that's going to be really destructive to you, your family, and, and your life work. And so I think to, 
to keep in mind that while we are called to pour out our life for our people, our communities, our churches, our organizations, uh, we're called first to attend to Jesus and receive from him. And out of that place of reception and joy and peace, we are to offer what we have to others. Mm-hmm. We can't give what we don't have. So the presence and uh, Jesus inside us um, and our reflection of his character is, is the greatest gift we can offer the world. What's at stake for the Christian leader right now who is doing the work, but if they're honest, they feel a bit disconnected from God and they're tired, but they don't know how to slow down. They wouldn't even know how to slow down the schedule and the thinking and be still. Like, and the reason why I ask what's at stake because because it happens so, it's so common. It's like the deep, uh, the default setting is just tons of activity. And I'm just beginning to wonder what happens if there's a generation of pastors in Canada who are doing the work, but not doing it from a deep connection with Jesus and that slowed down place. And I just feel like there might be some real things at stake, some ripple out effects that we might have not considered. And I wonder what you feel like is at stake uh, for young leaders feeling that way. Yeah, I, I think that um, everything is at stake. That that, and again, it may sound really simple, but you know, we I'm speaking to pastors now and those in some kind of vocational ministry, or even a Christian business person. You know, we are in a character work, and our first and foremost call is to know Jesus and to inhabit His life and invite him to inhabit us and out of that to offer something to the world. And we can get confused. If I can go back to California for a moment, um, you know, the church that I was involved in planting was taking off and I had um, a friend uh, in my life who was discouraging me from going back to Canada. He said, um, it rains a lot in Vancouver for one, the weather's better here in Southern California, which is true. true. And he said, you know, I hear that um, people are very resistant to to Christianity in Vancouver. So you'll, you'll never be a success, seen as a successful pastor if you go to Vancouver. That'll never happen for you. If you stay in Southern California, at least you have a chance. And uh, despite all of my ambitions as a young man, as a young pastor, I really felt even back then that true success wasn't being part of something big or being well-known, but it was simply doing what was in God's heart and mind. And uh, I think that we've got to resist the temptation to measure success by the size of our ministry or how well we're known. You know, I'm preaching through Jeremiah right now, who was in a kind of uh, non-COVID exile, or his people were, and he wasn't very successful by worldly standards. No one converted, no big revival broke out, no spiritual awakening. And yet he doggedly did what was in the heart of God. And so in God's eyes, he was hugely successful. And he had an enduring impact. I mean, in 2020, we're studying his, his writings in a way that he couldn't have imagined in the year 600 mm. BC. So um, I think if we're faithful to what we're called to be and do, that we'll have an enduring, maybe difficult, but but also um, ultimately fruit-bearing and, and peace-filled ministry. This feels like a really significant time um, for the church in Canada and around the world. Even before COVID, it felt like, I think maybe it's always significant, but it just, things felt acute. Like 
big transitions uh, as baby boomers are approaching retirement and new generation of leadership stepping up and a, an increasing secularism in culture and maybe even skepticism of the church. And then COVID happens and the doors are shut and all of a sudden ministry models are shifting. And then there's been this other, these other kind of awakenings of uh, social justice movements and crisis around racial injustice. And it just feels profound. And I think there's unique opportunities and challenges. And I just wonder, Ken, like when you look at the horizon for the church in this time and ahead, what are the unique opportunities and challenges that leaders need to be aware of right now as they think about pastoring in this time? Yeah, I think that um, this is a great opportunity. This may not be um, a very apt illustration, but when I was playing some basketball in high school, I remember one of my coaches was saying that um, if if you feel tired, remember that your opponent is a lot more tired. So this is an opportunity. Maybe that's not the best uh, analogy, but uh, a lot of us are feeling somewhat tired and fatigued and maybe stressed and anxious. And uh, if that's the case for us, others are feeling it probably more and and so this may be the greatest opportunity of our lifetime to be able to, to model the love of Christ in, in, mm. in really, really tangible, tangible ways. Um, Dorothy Day, the, you mentioned social justice, the, the great the Catholic social justice advocate, lived through the, I think it was the 1906 or 1908 uh, San Francisco earthquake, and she was eight years old. And she remembers how um, people were coming across the, the bay from Oakland uh, to the San Francisco side of the bay, and, and people were pitching tents for them and sharing their clothes and food. And, and she wrote in her journal as an eight-year-old, um, during this crisis, we're loving each other. Why can't we love each other like this all the time? Mm. And so, you know, in this crisis, it's an opportunity to really practically, you know, learn to love and care for our neighbor um, and... Uh, and hopefully we can continue this when we're out of this particular unusual season. So it is a, a time of great opportunity and possibility. Mm. What are you dreaming about, whether it's for the church in Canada or for the church in Vancouver? What, what has your imagination as you look out ahead? Yeah, it's, um, it's my hope and prayer that um, people will you know, discover, you know, the, just the, the beauty of Jesus. I know it, it sounds um, so simple, but uh, I've got some people that I'm thinking about in my extended family. Uh, one of my um, nieces has done really well in her sport. One of my nephews has um, got accepted into a great school in North America. And then another member of my extended family has just gotten to know Jesus in a deeper way. And all of these things are great, but, you know, the, the most, life-changing, beautiful thing is for a person to know Jesus more deeply. And so um, to see people awaken to Jesus and for us to have the privilege to point people in his direction is, is, is the great gift of life, I think. so. Well, I feel that spending time with you, Ken, I feel like spending time with you makes me like and love Jesus more. And so thanks for making time to be with me and for the listeners today. So grateful for you. Thank you, Jason. Really great to, to be with you and to be with your friends today. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to say a big thank you to Ken for taking time to chat and share with us today. 
If you enjoyed hearing what Ken had to say, I highly recommend his books, God in My Everything and Survival Guide for the Soul. I find myself returning back to those books on a regular basis, both for my own encouragement, but also as I look for language to teach others on spiritual disciplines. You can find the link to both those books, along with the show notes from this episode and details on our future guests at our blog at ccln.ca slash blog. Hey, and before you go, I want to say a quick word about Alpha Online. Since the pandemic restrictions began, we have seen churches across Canada and around the world launch Alpha online. And I know that this season has been hard for church leaders. And so finding meaningful ways to engage your congregation and those outside your church in the midst of restrictions is difficult. And so Alpha Online has become a reproducible way to see the ministry of the church go on even in the midst of the pandemic. And perhaps you've noticed this too, like maybe you found like us that the crisis has brought about a certain degree of openness to conversations with others about spirituality and faith and God. And so I wonder if this is a unique moment for the church to engage those who have left the church or have never walked into a church before. For us as a church plant, the most exciting thing that has happened this past year has happened through Alpha. I remember the moment we were running Alpha together, and then around March when the restrictions hit, we went online with that Alpha. And just a few weeks ago, one of the young men who's a bartender here in the city who was part of that Alpha course was baptized in the ocean. And now he is helping us run our next Alpha online starting in about a week. He's a small group leader. He's bringing along friends. We're beginning to see the ripple effect of what can happen when people engage in this space. And so if you're asking how you might empower your church to engage their neighbors and their friends, why not try running Alpha online? You can find out a bunch more by heading to alphacanada.org slash share 2020. That's alphacanada.org slash share 2020. Well, that's all we have for you today. Please, if you haven't already, give us a like or a review on whatever platform you're listening from. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next time.